Jesus, thank you. Thank you that we, we get to do this uh, with all of these uh, changes, uh, Lord, with uh, just the, the weirdness of sitting outside in a church parking lot with an empty sanctuary behind us. Uh, thank you that we can, get, we can worship you in this way. Soon, Lord, I pray, we will be able to look back on these days and we will remember your faithfulness, and we will see, Lord, in our response to you that some of us grew to be more like Jesus in these difficult days than in any other season in our lives. So help me now, Lord, to preach your word clearly. I pray that you would get all the attention, that people would obey you, that they would see what you're doing, see how you act, and that we as your disciples would take our cues from you because we are Christians. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. We're back in the Gospel of Luke. We've been in and out of the Gospel of Luke for quite a long time. We've reached Luke 19, and when we reach Luke 19, quite a bit is going on in the life of Jesus. If you'll open your Bible, please, to Luke chapter 19, we've reached verse 28. All eyes are on Jesus in Luke 19, verse 28. Your Bible says probably the editor has put something like the triumphal entry over this section. That is what this moment in the life of Jesus is known. That's how it's known. What is Luke is telling us here actually began many chapters earlier. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 51, we're told that when the time of Jesus being offered up, Luke is referring to his death, when Jesus knew the time of his death was near, in very picturesque language, he says Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. It literally means that Jesus, in Greek, Jesus stiffened his face. It sounds awkward in English 2,000 years later, but if you've ever seen a military recruiting poster, the men and women pictured on that military publicity, inviting people to join the armed forces, they have faces that are set, faces that are stiff. The art and the photography is meant to convey that the soldier, the marine, the airman is looking past the person that is looking at him at a vision that is greater than he is. That he is determined to do something that matters. That he is determined to fight and die if necessary in service of something that is much, much bigger than he is. In something that is cosmically bigger, so much more important in Luke 9.51, when his disciples can hardly believe it. In fact, they're going to deny that it should ever happen. Jesus sets his face to go toward Jerusalem. And from Luke 9 all the way to Luke 19, Jesus is dealing with people. He's working miracles. He's teaching with authority. He is doing what he has always done. He is giving witness through his word and through his actions that he is the Son of God. That the Son of the Most High that the angels sang over way back in Luke chapter 2, he really is that man. That though he was born in Bethlehem, and though he was raised in a little town of no account called Nazareth, this actually is the Son of God, and he is determined to go to Jerusalem. And when he finally enters, you're going to find a crowd, a throng around Jesus. And there's going to be all kinds of different expectations mixed through that crowd. Jesus alone knows exactly what he's doing. 
The crowd looks at him with expectation, as you're going to see. Some will look at him with rejection, if not outright hatred. Plots are going to begin swirling around Jesus to actually kill him. And those who want him murdered don't even know that the reason he set his face toward Jerusalem is he is determined to go to Jerusalem not to triumph, but to die. If this really is a triumphal entry, it's a strange kind of triumph because Jesus is going to enter in a way that we're going to have to decipher. He's going to culturally choose symbols and the crowd itself in a rare moment of recognition of who Jesus is and what God is doing in His Son, Jesus Christ, they're actually going to cite Scripture from a thousand years earlier saying aloud, we understand and we recognize who this is. Read with me in Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19 in verse 28. Jesus told a parable of terrible judgment in the previous passage and Luke links it in verse 28, when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When you go to Jerusalem in Israel, you're always going up. It is at the high point. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, Bethany is about two miles to the east of the city of Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, it's another way to refer to the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this. What did Jesus tell them to say? The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent ahead when those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. What is happening here? Remember, anytime you're reading the Bible, you're reading an ancient book. You're reading from a language and a culture that is not your own. This is a well-known cultural background that is hidden to us. In the time of Jesus, in the first century, a dignitary, including important rabbis, could on special occasions freely use the property that belonged to other people. It was a way that the culture had decided as a convention that there were some people that were so notable and so important that they could temporarily use something that belonged to someone else for their own purposes because they mattered that much. The occasion was that important. That's what Jesus is doing. He's taking a young colt, someone that is never, a colt that has never been mounted. Two of his disciples are going to do it. They're doing exactly what Jesus says and Jesus is orchestrating everything. He knows where the colt is. He knows that they will be challenged. He knows the response to give and he knows how God will work in the heart of the people who own that animal to apparently very willingly surrender it. And the disciples bring it back and sensing the moment, they take off some of their outward clothing and make a makeshift saddle for Jesus on a colt. What's the background here? Well, if you read in the history of Israel, when great King David, that great warrior that had shed so much blood, is going to hand the kingdom off to his throne, Solomon. Solomon once rode an animal like this. 
It was a way to portray to the nation that Solomon was a man unlike his father. He too would know God. He also would serve God. But he wasn't going to be a warrior. He wasn't going to be a warrior king as David was. Solomon was going to enjoy peace and he was going to ride a colt, not a war horse. Keep reading with me. Verse 35, they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Well, that's even more important. Jesus has been walking toward Jerusalem for quite some time. Now he is on the Mount of Olives. And I wish I could show you, these conditions don't make it possible, but I wish I could show you how very close Jesus is to the city. He's on the Mount of Olives, which sounds imposing with that title, but it's actually a cliff. If you could see it, you wouldn't think much of it. It is covered then and now with olive trees. And the most important thing about the Mount of Olives, perhaps, is that at the base of the Mount of Olives is a very famous garden. The Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus will pray in his final hours, is at the very bottom of the Mount of Olives, and after a short little valley and a quick little rise, you enter the city. It's important that you see this. I can't tell you for certain because it depends on how you measure where the Garden of Gethsemane is to the exact place that Jesus was taken, but it's a very walkable distance. From the Garden of Gethsemane, you can see everything that is every important place that Jesus is going to be at the end of his life. It's probably not much more than a mile from the place where he prayed and the place where he was arrested. He went not to hide on the Mount of Olives, not to hide in the Garden of Gethsemane, but to sit, if you will, on the front porch of the city within plain sight of the place where he will be tried. I'm convinced because they arrested him at night and they came with torches, Jesus could have seen the, profession, the procession of men heavily armed, knowing that he will, not knowing that he will not resist and that though a king and though the son of God, he will willingly go with him because that's why he's come. Some in the crowd begin to sense the magnitude of this moment. You see that in verse 36. As he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. What's that about? Then and now, I think if someone took their coat off and set it on the ground for you to walk on, you would think that was a bit over the top, but you would understand that their effort in that moment was to honor you in some way. If you will, the crowd is spontaneously doing something like we do on big occasions. They're doing something like rolling out the red carpet. They're saying, this way for the king, make way for the king. He's not coming on a war horse. He's coming on a colt, his feet barely off the ground, moving slowly along on an animal that is not used to being mounted, being received with shouts and praises by the people. Verse 37, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Jesus here is just riding along, but his fame and his reputation have followed him. The crowds have followed him too. They've seen him give sight to the blind. They have seen day after day him doing things that only God could do. And they shout and they rejoice. Look carefully at verse 37. They praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. What is Jesus doing here? Well, 
we're going to develop a little Bible study skill here. I want you to see that Jesus is choosing his mount very carefully because he's conscious of a prophecy written about him hundreds of years earlier in the book of Zechariah. Let me show you what I mean by a Bible study skill. If you have your Bibles in Luke 19 and you look back up in the verse, in verses 29 and verse 30, if you have cross-references in your Bible, you have cross-references, usually they're in the center column or off to one side. Do you have those? The Bible editors, those aren't original to the Bible, obviously. The Bible editors, the printers, are helping you make connections with what is happening in the New Testament and the Old. They're helping you follow ideas and themes across God's Word. And verses 29 and 30 have a reference probably in your Bible to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Here's what Zechariah wrote. He was referring to the first coming of Jesus. Look, Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. That's two ways poetically to refer to the same city, to the capital of Israel. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Hundreds of years earlier, Zechariah spoke of Israel's king. He identified Israel's Messiah. He identified the one that had been promised to come from the nation of Israel, the true son of Adam, the true son of Abraham, the true descendant of the patriarchs who alone was the one who was going to save them. And if you look carefully at Zechariah's prophecy, it says that the king who is coming to them is righteous and victorious. But it goes on to say something else. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Notice the repetition. My number one Bible reading tip all these years, some of you know it. What is it? Slow down. Why would it say it twice? Because it portrays the character and the disposition of Jesus as he enters the city in what we somewhat ironically perhaps have called the triumphal entry. You see, when Jesus is described in the book of Zechariah, we are told he is a king. We are told he is righteous. We are told he is victorious. But there's another word. Read that verse again to yourself. Let's study the Bible together for a second. Is there a word in that passage that surprises you? What is it? Lowly. It is not surprising that Jesus is righteous. Jesus is the only man alive who in the Gospel of John in chapter 8 faces people who hate him, who examined his life seeking to do him harm and ultimately to kill him and says to them, who of you accuses me of wrong? No one else can ever ask that. Any one of you could never stand, I could never stand in front of the people that know me well and say, can anyone here accuse me of sin? People would say, where would you like to start? How long do you have? Have a seat. Let's talk about your many shortcomings and your many mistakes, your many sins, how selfish you can be. It'd take a long time. Jesus is righteous, Jesus is victorious, but he is also, though, a king. Zechariah says, the king that is coming to you, Jerusalem, 
the king that is coming into the city, the daughter, is lowly. That is how Jesus comes because Zechariah here is describing his first coming. And listen, the point of all these sermons, the point of the entire scriptures is to give witness to Jesus so that you will be a disciple of Jesus, so that you will follow him, so that you will be like him. Many years ago, I was teaching college ministry. It didn't go particularly well. I wasn't very good at it. Uh, my friend, ironically, the same professor I was telling you about called my college ministry the church at Corinth back in those days. For those of you who were Bible students, you'll have some idea of how the kids were behaving under my careful leadership. No wonder I stayed in school, right? Hoping to learn something that could help people. Well, at that time, I was reading and learning the Gospels myself, and I decided to take the college students along with me, and I asked them, do you guys read the Gospels? One of the kids said, no, I don't read the Gospels at all. Well, that's a surprising thing to say in a Bible study. I said, why ever not? He said, well, I read them, all four of them, once. I know the story. I don't need to read them anymore. A lot of people apparently approach the Gospels of Jesus, the life of Jesus, in that way. They treat it as a movie, and once they know the outcome, they're done with it. Please be careful of that. These stories are told in this careful detail with all this cultural background, with these words, if we're careful to read them slowly, shouting at us at the kind of person Jesus is so that we will be his disciples. In Luke chapter 6, verse 40, Jesus says that a student is not above his teacher, but when a student is fully trained, he will be like his teacher. That's what we're after. All of these gospels, all of these stories, his choices, his words, his attitudes, what Jesus chooses to do and what Jesus refuses to do, it's all intended to show us the king, righteous and victorious and to make us like him. But step out of the ancient world and step into our present day world with all of these troubles. Let me ask you, has the pandemic, has all this trouble, has all this pressure, has all the division that our nation experienced, has that made you more or less like Jesus? What Jesus is always working on at all times until he calls you home or comes again, what Jesus is always after is for you to become more like him. And this triumphal entry in front of this crowd with all of its divided agendas, with all the division among it, what he wants to do is present himself in his first coming. Yes, righteous. Yes, victorious. But also lowly. Also the kind of king who surprisingly is humble, who is compassionate and merciful to the people surrounding him. Look in verse 38. The crowd is saying perhaps more even than they knew. They were saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And there again, your editors have probably put an indentation in the Bible and a reference there. What's the reference now? It's Psalm. What Psalm? Psalm 118. What verse? Now, if you read 118 verse 26 carefully, you're going to notice that the crowd changed a word. Actually, they added a word. Psalm 118 was a song that was sung. It was a greeting that was given to pilgrims as they entered Jerusalem. And it said, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. The crowd, according to Luke's telling, said more than that. They said, blessed is the, what? 
the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That may sound familiar. The words are slightly different, but that sounds very much like the angels singing over the birth of Jesus, announcing it to shepherds. Why is all this happening? Because Jesus has all eyes on him, and he wants to portray in every way and in every action, beginning with the choice of mount, with his feet nearly dragging on the ground, sitting on a makeshift saddle, hastily assembled by the clothes of disciples who were overcome by the moment and want to honor him as best they can, with the animals stepping on the clothing of other people who spontaneously had thrown what little they have in the road to say, this is our King Jesus wants in all things for his disciples to know who he is. And this is why it's so important especially in this pandemic, especially in the last few weeks, many people who use the name of Jesus are not acting much like Jesus. They become harsh and judgmental and hateful. They have a king who, ro- who lowly rides on a simple animal. As the crowd shouts in recognition of who he comes, he enters not to triumph, but actually to die for the crowd. He's actually on his way into the city to die for some of the sinners who are going to accuse him. He's actually going to die for some of the people that are going to put him to death. If you keep reading through the Gospel of Luke, you'll discover a Roman soldier having witnessed Jesus' death. As Jesus dies, he says when it's over, truly, this was the Son of God. Jesus is dying for the religious and for the pagan. He's entering the city not truly to triumph, but to insist on the triumph of the crucifixion. And the most ironic and perhaps the most damaging thing that Christians are doing in this day is acting as if they could supplant Jesus and become what he is, become the judge. As if they could act in judgment of people they consider their enemies. Listen to me, please, Christian. If you have enemies, and frankly, most of you probably don't, you just have a persecution complex. But if you have enemies, do you remember what Jesus told you to do? If you actually have enemies, what are you to do for them? You are to love them and pray what? The preposition matters. Pray for them, not against them. If you love them, you will pray for them. How in the world could I ever do that? Well, I do that because this is my king. He could come in a war horse. He could come in and destroy the city. He could call down the legion of angels. He told his confused disciples were waiting for his command to come rescue him, but he does not. He goes in, enduring the false agendas, enduring the accusations, enduring the confusion, and receiving the worship of the crowd because he knows exactly who he is. The confusion among some Christians, perhaps, is that they have lost the difference between the first coming and the second coming. The disciples who are claiming to represent Jesus and calling for apocalypse are saying that it is already here so they don't have to act like lowly Jesus anymore. They only need to read a little bit further in Zechariah. Perhaps you've never seen this. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 that we've studied is a reference to Jesus' first coming. Let me show you a few verses regarding his second. If you have your notes, if the crowd would have kept reading, 
would have kept reading, perhaps they could have understood that Jesus was marking and ending His first coming. But Zechariah also spoke of the second. Look, Zechariah 14, verse 4. On that day, a future day, on that day His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, East of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. A few verses later in verse 8, on that day living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it east of the Dead Sea and half of it west of the Mediterranean Sea in summer and in winter. If you have your notes or you have your app open, read verse 9 with me. This is the second coming of Jesus. It says, The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. That's in the same book that prophesied his first coming. On another time, he truly will come in triumph. This time, he's riding down the Mount of Olives, passing the Garden of Gethsemane, passing the shallow Valley of Kidron on the way up the slope into the city where he will be unjustly accused, where he will be murdered. Through no sins of his own, he will be murdered for my sins and yours. What is this Savior like? Who is this man riding into the city? Well, he's the promised king. He's the promised Messiah. And he is the Savior of the world. This is who Jesus is. But not everybody's buying it. Not everybody believes it. Look in verse 30. Look in verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher... Rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they were silent, the very stones would cry out. What is going on here? The religious leaders of Israel who knew the scriptures better than anyone in the crowd except Jesus understand the references. I can't prove it, but I believe they understood. They immediately made the connection to Zechariah. They see him riding a colt as Solomon once did. They understand the messianic reference in Zechariah chapter 9, and they think this man commits blasphemy. He's using symbols. He's appropriating honors to himself that correspond to the Messiah, but he cannot be the Messiah. He is not who we expected we thought we would have a warrior. We thought we would have a king who would come in on a charger and destroy our enemies. We weren't expecting this humble man. We weren't expecting anyone born in Bethlehem. We weren't expecting a carpenter's son from no account Nazareth. So, master, tell your disciples, they say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they were silent, the very stones would cry out. That's the attitude and the disposition of God. Do you understand the harshness of the rebuke that he gave them in return? Listen, Jesus said, if they stop praising God, if they stop recognizing who I am, the rocks around us will praise me. Who says that? The king the Savior, the Messiah, the one who God promised, the one who is righteous, the one who is victorious. This is who Jesus is. What is Jesus like? Please listen, disciple. If you're going to be like Jesus, if you're going to grow in likeness of the one who saved you, please understand 
what Jesus is like. Jesus is a humble king. He is the God that is worthy of praise. He is the only one who can bring peace of hev- the peace of heaven to earth. And he is also the Savior who weeps over coming judgment. I'm probably just watching too much news. I've told you. Stop doom scrolling on your phones. You'll get so wound up you won't think or act or feel anything like Jesus would ever again. I've cut my news consumption way down, but I'm paying attention to a lot of pastors, a lot of theologians, a lot of people from whom I think I can learn. And sadly, a number of them are setting great examples, but a few appear to have lost their minds. They are speaking so harshly. They are speaking so unchristianly. There is nothing in their public countenance in the words they choose to hurl at people that could ever remind anyone of the king who rode in with his feet barely off the ground on a colt, receiving makeshift praise and spontaneous worship from people who were in that moment alone perhaps recognizing truly who this is of whom the religious crowd says, teacher, tell them to shut up. No, I won't, because if I did, the rocks I made around them, they would tell you who I am. What is Jesus like? Jesus is a Messiah. Jesus is a humble king. Jesus is the one that God promised and very sobering. Jesus is also the Savior who weeps over coming judgment. Look in verse 41. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. I want you to see that just for a moment. Because this is so well known as the triumphal entry that I recognized in reading this passage again and again and again that as familiar as the story should be to me, I have forgotten that along with the praise of people, when the voices of the crowd died down, Jesus started crying. Because as he, rode, as he went up the gentle slope from the Kidron Valley into the city and he saw the walls of the city of God, he wept over it because he knew they wouldn't stand for long. He wept over the city. What should disciples of Jesus learn from this? Look, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden for your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Please focus on the last phrase. Jesus said, you did not know the time of your visitation. What he means is, Jerusalem, you did not know God had come to visit you. God was coming into your midst and you did not know. Please notice how timely this is. It's 2,000 years old and it's as timely as Twitter. Verse 42, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. That could be said to many Christians now. Many people who really do know Jesus, who have walked faithfully with him for many years, the pressure, the trouble, the suffering, the loss of the pandemic has apparently hidden Jesus from their eyes. 
Let me put it to you this way. If Christians became as bold in speaking the gospel of Jesus as we've become and sharing our opinions, God would revive this nation. Where did we ever get the idea that the world needed us to be pundits? What the pandemic has done, at best, I hope and pray, is that it has exposed the idolatry of all the things that Christians evidently believed would make for peace. The one who will make peace is the one riding the colt into Jerusalem to die for sinners. Jesus knows what the crowd cannot yet see. He said in verse 43, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. What is that? That is the Roman Titus. Three and a half decades later in the year 70 AD, setting siege to Jerusalem building things around it so that no one could escape until the wall was breached and the Roman soldiers burst in. And if you went back with us to Israel again, you could see the word of Jesus come true. It says in verse 44, they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. If you go to the ancient city now, you can see, bolt, you can see stones that were once in the wall, nearly the size of this stage, embedded in the ancient street below. They have been left there from the time of Jesus as a remembrance that Jesus told the truth. That because the people to whom Jesus offered himself did not recognize who he was, the Romans would come, Titus would come and tear the city down. Jesus isn't done. Jesus is the Savior who weeps over coming judgment and he gives them a picture of that judgment and what he does last. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den for robbers. See, the temple in the day of Israel is where people still heard from God. People selfishly had turned God's house into a place of crass commercialism. They were enriching themselves and abusing others financially. Why did Jesus cleanse the temple? He did it twice, I believe. He did it at the beginning and he did it at the end of his ministry. I want you to think about that. Jesus did it at the very beginning of his ministry. And what did people do? They filled it back up with commerce. They filled the court of the Gentiles with a place of commerce so that the people who were farthest from God could have no witness of God. And Jesus does what the temple was designed for. Verse 47, he was teaching daily in the temple. What was Jesus teaching them? Luke doesn't tell us, but I've got a pretty good idea. Jesus is telling them who he is. He's saying what he's always said from the beginning of his ministry. He is saying, as we're told in the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus began his ministry, he went everywhere saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn away from your sins because the king has arrived. He is not the king you expected. He is evidently the king not many of you wanted, but the king has come. And look at the hardness of the heart of the religious authorities, the chief priests and the scribes, and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. See, that brings us to the final question. Luke wants to show you through fulfilled prophecy and the actions and the choices of Jesus, he wants you to know who exactly Jesus is. 
He is the Messiah that Micah prophesied would be born in Bethlehem. He is the one who would ride lowly into Jerusalem that Zechariah saw in the ninth chapter of his prophecy. Not the king the crowd expected, but the king they needed. The king who will go not to crush enemies, but to die for them. The king who is calling his disciples now between the time of his first and second coming to act as he acted, to choose as he did, to think as he thought, to feel as he felt so that we may love the people who say they hate us. He is the Savior who weeps because he knows coming judgment. The final question that Luke has for us is, how is he going to be received? And that, friend, that's entirely up to you. Luke has shown you this confused crowd with all of its possible reactions to put you at a crossroads to decide yourself what you think of Jesus. In the interim between this service, between the first service and this one, I received a message that broke my heart. A friend of mine that for reasons I don't yet understand, I'd like to ask a little bit more has decided after many years of apparently following Jesus that Jesus is not who he claimed to be. That decision is still being made in the hearts of men and women today. You're going to find that the crowd who says, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, Blessed is the one who represents the peace of heaven. Blessed is the one who makes sure that we can give glory to God in the highest. You're going to find that a crowd just a few days later is going to shout something entirely different. This crowd said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Not too many days hence, a different crowd will shout at Pilate, crucify him. And Judas will have made his betrayal and cowardly Pilate will do his best to symbolically distance himself from him. He will warn the crowd, I find no fault in him. And the crowd will say, we don't care. Pilate tries to shame them by offering a wicked criminal and saying, which would you like to save and which would you like to punish? And they said, give us Barabbas and kill this man. Jesus has always provoked these strong reactions. Some will be indifferent, some will be hateful, some will seek to destroy him, some will deride him and label him the greatest myth in the history of mankind. What you do with Jesus next, that is between you and the Lord, but I am here to tell you to the very best of my prayerful ability that he really is the coming Savior. He really does make disciples. Some of you have grown so much in the likeness of Christ since all this trouble with the pandemic began. I can't tell you how proud I am of you. I can't tell you how thankful I am for our church that you've chosen to act this way. To look and act and feel and do and give and serve and love and forgive and to endure hatred and endure discrimination in some cases and to return it with the same kind of love and humility that Jesus did. Some of you need to make your stand for Christ today. At all times, through all of his parables, through all of his miracles, through all of his teachings, what Jesus is always intending to do is to put people at a crossroads so that they will decide for themselves what they think of him, so that they will cast their verdict on who Jesus is. If you're his disciple... See him lowly riding into Jerusalem to die for you so that your sins could be forgiven and make it your settled conviction that you will act more like him until he comes again or calls you home. 
And if you don't know Jesus, this is my plea. From one Christian to someone who could still become a Christian to trust Jesus as the Savior who rode to triumph, the triumph of a cross, so that you could have eternal life. Can we pray together, please? Let's turn to Jesus right now. Let me speak first to the disciples. Christian, has the pandemic made you more like Christ? Have all the pressures, all the losses, all the choices, all the difficulties, all the injustices, all the harassment, however you choose to characterize it, whatever has happened to you, has all of that made you more like this righteous, victorious, lowly king of yours? If not, that's where you begin. You turn to him, the savior you have, the teacher you've chosen, the teacher who chose you, and you say, Jesus, make me more like you. You taught me to love my enemies and to pray for them. I've been hateful and resentful instead. You chose humility and lowliness. I've chosen pride and resentment. Whatever it is, those are just two examples. I don't know how the Lord is dealing with you. I can tell you this alone. G Jesus wants you to be more like him. Less like your old self that he saved and more like the person, more like the son, more like the daughter of God that he died to make you. Talk to him about it. Confess your sins to him. Renew your commitment to him. And whether you're here in person or online, I don't know. This really is the Messiah. That's why the Bible's so big. It's filled with prophecies and promises and pictures of who he was that he carefully fulfilled choice by choice, day by day. Things that happened before he was conscious of life, like the place of his birth, the family he was born into, and the conscious deliberate choices to announce to the world, I'm the one that the scriptures promised. He really is the only one who can save you. So my invitation to you is to turn to him, to hear his preaching, repent and believe the good news because the kingdom of God is at hand. Yes, it is. The king has come. The good news, he's he died for you. You don't have to save yourself. He died to save you. So if you don't know him, you thought you did, but now you're not so sure. Could you turn to him humbly and say, Jesus, I'm turning myself in. I confess my sin to you. I confess my need of you. You're righteous. I'm not. You're perfect and truthful and holy and just and pure. I'm not any of those things. Those are my sins. Please come and be my Savior. He'll do it. Did it for me. He's done it for millions. He'll give you eternal life starting today. He'll give you a new life, a new energy that you cannot suspect and I cannot adequately explain to let you know that you really are his child. The changes won't be immediate, but they'll start now. He'll relieve your conscience. He'll fill your heart with the sense of his life and his goodness. And day by day, he'll make you more like him if you'll only obey him. If you do that today, please let us know. You can send me an email or you can simply send his name, the name Jesus. You can text that to this number, 714-868-7258. 714-868-7258. Just text us his name, the name Jesus, to that number. If you know him, 
Christian, let's follow it. Father, I pray that you'd bless my brothers and sisters. Help us be truly your disciples. Give us conviction and humility and courage and love to be as you are. We'll never do it perfectly on this earth, but we can get started. We can love, we can forgive. When someone declares themselves our enemy, we can choose in obedience to you to love them and pray for them. We can return love for hatred. We can hold out, Lord, this good news. And if there's a single person in right here in the tents, Lord, in this parking lot, in these strange conditions, or there's someone watching online that doesn't know you, I pray that they would turn to you right now and ask you, Lord, to be their Lord, their King, their Savior. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. And Crosspoint said, amen. Listen, it's harder than ever, but we really want to connect with you. Okay? I have a saying in Mexico where I grew up that you suffer because you want to. Okay? In other words, sometimes things are tough because we don't do the things that would help. I'm giving you an open invitation. Myself, our staff, many, many loving volunteers in our church, we want to come alongside you. We want to pray for you. If you're hurting, if you need encouragement, if you need direction, if you need counsel, if you need help in any way, please, please let us know. That's why we're here. We want to serve you in the name of Jesus. We want you to be reminded of Jesus by the way we love you. That's why we're here. If you have questions about this Savior, I'd be thrilled to talk to you. I remember my struggle with Jesus. I would love to walk alongside yours until you call him your king, your savior, your boss. Father, dismiss us in your grace and this week, help us all give a clear picture of our king. We ask in Jesus' name, and Crosspoint said, amen. God bless you folks. Love you.